them very well, uh, better than the news. Um, I want to tackle right away, Father, a couple of yes. breaking uh, kind of news stories. One, uh, I started getting messages yes. that a an exorcist, one that you may know, was very brutally murdered in America. What what do you know about that, Father? Yes, the man we're both thinking of, uh, his name was Alfred Kunz. And he was a parish priest in Dane, which is a parish in Ohio, in in uh, in Milwaukee, in in um, in uh, pardon me, in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, all right. In Wisconsin, and um, he was found uh, at seven o'clock in the morning uh, with his throat cut from ear to ear. His throat cut. Yeah, from ear to ear, in his own blood, face down into it, and with obviously various acts of desecration of his body, uh, which are normally associated with a Satanist-inflicted death. Uh, Father Kunz, of course, um, and by the way, he was a very popular parish priest with his people. Uh, he had done exorcisms, but very, very private. Most of us don't talk about them because they usually involve confessional material. And uh, Father Kunz was a very good priest and never spoke about confessional material. Had he been in communication with you? Yes, we had been in communication. Uh, do you know offhand if he was doing anything at the time? I'm, I'm sure the police are probably asking about this, but I mean, it's an obvious question. They, they are, and they, they, they uh, are refusing to give any of the more lurid details of the mode of his death for the simple reason that they don't want to, they suspect it's somebody within his vicinity, not a stranger. Um, and there are only, I think, a couple of hundred people. Well, no, about 700, 800 people involved. Uh, there's certainly not a random act of violence, somebody who wanted to steal or was caught in the act of stealing and simply flailed out. Uh, they're convinced it wasn't a random act like that, that was a deliberately set up thing. Uh, and at least one person was involved in it, uh, perhaps more. Uh, Kunz himself had just been doing radio shows with a priest friend whom we all know very much, Father Fiore, and um, they returned home late at night, uh, late being about 10 o'clock in the evening. Um, and uh, we know that he was alive at 10.30 um, because he made a telephone call or received a telephone call, I forget which, but then the following morning at 7 o'clock, a young man who came to assist him at Mass, etc., uh, found him lying, as I said, in his own blood with this uh, very, very sinister uh, mode of death etched on his body. Um, there's no doubt about it that it is related. Uh, whether it's related to his very confidential activity as a priest, uh, in regard to covens of warlocks uh, in neighboring areas, we may never know. We may never know. Uh, we may never know because, number one, the police have a habit in this country uh, that whenever there is, and it's a good habit on the whole, whenever there is any real Satanist activity of a shocking kind, they don't publish the details that indicate the Satanist connection. Uh, they just uh, 
they, they published the, 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 the bare details of a murder. Why do you think that, Father? Well, uh, it's also you're asking me why I think it's a good idea in general, because it doesn't evoke the, the copycat syndrome. Uh, these things do because uh, about 300 years, 200 years ago, they stopped doing exorcisms in public precisely because uh, it evoked the copycat syndrome in people, uh, imitators. Well, you have told me many times since you have done so many exorcisms that oh. there is real, very serious, very real danger. Is it not possible? I, I, it's got to be possible that... Yeah that in his work, um, in some way, in the middle of some exorcism or as part of one, an ongoing one, or, mm -hmm. you know, who knows? Um, I have no doubt about uh, the answer to your question I, I foresee uh, and interpret is no doubt about it. The, the death was not random. It was not an act of personal vengeance, somebody who got annoyed at him for some particular thing. It was in connection with his work as a priest and uh, in the area of demonic possession father have you ever uh, been concerned at that level um have you ever w without being specific because i know you can't about specific exorcisms mm -hmm. but have you ever have you ever been concerned for yourself in yes very s same way very very same way but you learn after a certain time to take that added risk and you take precautions but yes Surely, and at times the, the, the menace or the threat is uh, more patent or obvious than at other times, uh, sure. Uh, and sometimes it's quite voluble, it's quite uh, expressive. You're warned, and more than one good priest in that part of the world, uh, especially one or two very prominent ones, got telephone calls um, pointing out that they will they will go the same way. Oh? Uh, yes, and one of them actually had to hire a bodyguard, or was given a bodyguard by the police because of his prominence. Well, you've been a very prominent exorcist. Have you received threats? Oh, yes, in the past, yes. Not recently, but in the past, yes, very much. Not as part of this, this or a connected... No, not as part of this, because I wasn't in any way related to this. And as one, one person told me, sort of...
incidences and types of demonic assault have increased. First of all, the increase has been about 750% since that time. 750%. About 750, judging by figures. And this is in the northeast corner of America, the tri-state area essentially, although it takes in outlying areas too. But then the types of possession, we have now the two phenomena that are very interesting. We have the phenomenon of the 20-something or 30-something that comes and says, look, Father, I want such and such a job, or I want to get this particular woman. Uh, I want to make this marriage. Yes. I want this money. And I made, I, I made a pact with, uh, with uh, Satan, with the devil, and I got it. Now he won't let go of me. Uh, this didn't occur before in my experience, that, in the limited experience I had. And secondly, then there's the... This is how recent? This phenomenon, how recent? Uh, the last 10 years. The last 10 years? The last 10 years. And then uh, there is also the secondary, the second one, second form, which is a bit off-putting, to put it, put it mildly, mm -hmm. that we now find the age is younger. We find uh, children, those that we would technically call children, six years old, who are obviously not merely obsessed, but on their way to full possession. Uh, there was a recent case uh, in Arkansas that I'm sure you heard of uh, in which a couple of young fellows uh, decided they were going to uh, kill their classmates and teachers and pulled a fire alarm yeah. and um, brought uh, rifles and lots of ammunition and simply started shooting students Wildly. and teachers. That's right. Just started shooting. That's right. I wish I knew the details of that case, but again, the police are singing mum, as they say. They're saying nothing about the details, and there's a great protectiveness web wove around those uh, young, you know... Uh, of course, yes, uh, juveniles, yes. Uh, juveniles, um, but we don't know the details of it at all. Uh, An awful lot of that going on, if that uh, cooperates what you were saying. There is, there is, and there's much more than is is reported in public by the media. Uh, and in some, in several states, there's an agreement, uh, sort of an unwritten agreement between the police uh, and the governor. Um, there's an unwritten agreement that no details will ever be published without formal permission. Uh, by the media or by the police of any obviously Satanist or Luciferian happening. Well, I understand that on the one hand with regard to the possibility of copycat mm -hmm. crimes. Mm -hmm. However, uh, however, if this really is on the increase in America now, mm -hmm. shouldn't we know about it? Yes, I think we should. Uh, the incidences, it's more frequent inc as far as the incidents of it. And if you drew, drew a graph, you'd, you'd find an increase of over 700% since the early 1970s. Now, who, who keeps track of that? Are you, are you we, the one? We do. We do in this uh, northeast corner of the, of, the, of the United States. That's why I'm only talking about that, too. And I could make oblique references, but they'd be anecdotally, as regards evidence, to other parts of the country. But you're sure of what you're saying with regard to the Northeast? Yes, I'm unfortunately rather sure of that. And uh, the 
also the what has come to light is that it's, it's, it is not so surprising for a lot of people that there are covens amongst the very educated class, architects, doctors, lawyers, priests, brokers, um, and the leisure class. These are people who have made pacts with the devil. That's right. They, it's really the, the best, the more accurate way of describing it would be that they have indulged themselves in the worship of the goat, of the prince, of the serpent, of Satan, of Lucifer, and uh, they lead perfectly, uh, they lead perfectly normal lives. They're jewel merchants. They travel. They're, they're prominent in their own way, but they do have this indulgence. Father, here's a part of that I can never understand. Mm. That has never made sense to me, and that is, if somebody were to make um, a pact with the devil. Then, obviously, the, the implication is if, if the devil is there to make a pact with them, to make a deal, to make their life, uh, their short mortal life on earth pleasurable um, yeah. with, with money or women or travel. Or more or, interesting, more interesting. Or more interesting, whatever it is they want. Yes. Then they are aware of the presence of the devil, and they are obviously aware then oh, yeah. um, oh, of yeah. the presence of God as well. And they, uh, nevertheless, make a conscious, stupid, short-term blind choice to take what they can get in this lifetime and i just, I just it, it, to embrace one you must embrace the other it's not like it's some wishy-washy person I, I know i know i know you do there's it is very uh, not easy to understand except when you talk with them when they let their hair down and peel grapes as we say and when they're they're on their way to being cured of what they or healed is the proper word you find that there's an exhilaration, a satisfaction, which is both sensual and sexual and mental, when they really indulge in, in Luciferian worship. There is a, a peculiar exhilaration. Like a drug, then? Yes, yes, it's a peculiar exhilaration. And of course, the, the, the godly instincts in us all, the angelic in us all, because we all have something angelic and something godly, everything is uh, a lot of other negative things uh, that is quenched uh, you find in them a horror uh, a horror of anything what we call sacred and holy or sacrosanct or the idea of the the, the idea of the, of the of the sacred of the awesome i only i only heard this once father i interviewed you we talked about this i interviewed a satanist her name was patsy uh -huh. And uh, this caused a great deal of controversy after the last program that I did with you. I got many, many messages about it. Uh -huh. Patsy was a devil worshiper. No question about it. No question about it. Toward the end of the program, she revealed to me that her husband had murder, murdered her little child, uh -huh. a several-year-old child. And, um, uh -huh. and she said, I, I, I said to her, well... Um, um, you're sure not going to be with your daughter, are you? In other words, your daughter's going to be in heaven, and you're going to be acknowledged you're going to be in hell. She said, oh, no, I took steps to ensure that my, uh, my daughter would be uh, in hell with me. Um, and, and I asked you about that. Was that possible, I asked? And you said, yes. And then, by the way, you're not the only one who said yes. A couple of other experts said the same thing. Sure, and people just went berserk. They said, no, it can't be. I'm sorry. It is. You see, the, the, sometimes we, we moderns think with a very peculiar and artificial frame 
of reference as regards the human soul and the human mind. Uh, we're not talking, uh, if we really are realistic, we're talking about the basic inclination of the human soul, the human spirit, and not about some informed concept. So we are we are making these statements based on what our own frame of reference is. That's right. Exactly. Not 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 what uh, spiritual reality is. Exactly, exactly. And it's it's a frightening thing when you come across what we all know is called bad seed. It's a frightening thing. It's like those two little boys in England that were uh, the, uh, that, that that boy in England who killed off two of his little yes sir. children. It's a frightening thing when you meet it because it's. Art, art and let me try and convey it to you and your listeners, you come across this extraordinary... Father, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what, we're at the bottom of the hour. Okay, so. why don't we wait? Was the fact that there's nothing more appalling uh, for, the, for the mind that I, I, I have anyway than to come across a person technically considered a child with the hard glare of consummate hatred and complete lack of the normal reactions of uh, compassion and feeling and understanding. Right. And we do find that today, it, 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 I, I was going to say increasingly, but there's a certain increase amongst the age group of six, five, no, five to eight. And that's a very disturbing thing. And it's impossible to say that it's developed by TV, by violence on TV, and that sort of business. We don't know. There's no official inquiry into it because uh, many of the people who should be, like, for instance, there's one section of the FBI, I think, a, a bioethical laboratory or something, I forget the exact title of it, it's one of their institutes, uh, one of their uh, institutes in Washington supposed to inquire into it, but they poo-poo the idea of, of active Satanism. Well, um, well alright, um, here's what it seems like to me, uh, the layman, it seems, it seems like we have some soulless people being born. I mean, um, even little children, certainly when I was little, I remember, I understood life, the value of life, and right and wrong, and now we have children that are killing, and when asked why they did it, they get really interesting answers like to see what it would feel like. That's right. That sort of thing. That's right. Uh, this That's this right. is from uh, what I would consider to be a soulless being. Uh, either that or otherwise, uh, you covered the ground, television, the rest of it. So then why? What's happening? Those of us who are engaged in the field of demonology uh, always find, finally, the footprint of the of the goat, the footprint of Lucifer, um, and that is a very distinctive thing. And what is disturbing is that many times young persons of this ilk are very brilliant mentally. Mm. They're not. They're not stupid. They're not dull. They're not yokels. They're not. You know. They're not stupid. On the contrary, they're quite intelligent. Outstrip their peers. Well, in an academic sense, yes. In an academic sense. And that's a bit frightening because they're intelligent and they dodge the issue. And um, it, 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 the whole thing is very disturbing. And, of course, it goes back to the breakdown of the family as such in our population. 
I mean, take for instance the figure which is solid, that 33% of all births are illegitimate. 33% of all births yeah. are illegitimate. That's right. Well, fully one-third. Yep. And uh, sociologists are, are weary and tired out depicting the general tendency amongst the illegitimate to um, all sorts of perversions and deficiencies, societal and personal. So I suppose that's part of that picture, but there's still this, there's still this footprint, this footprint touch of Satanism, yes, it's a, it's a smell, it's a, it's a print. You know that the, uh, some being with a hoof, to use the image, with cloven hoofs, as you know, the, the Irish have a, have a, have a, have a tradition that if some, if you have a vision, an apparition of somebody who claims to be the Virgin Mary or Christ and, um, or a saint, always look at the feet. <laughs> this is the Irish uh, uh, idea mm. that they can, they can imitate everything except he can't hide his cloven feet. But it's only a, it's an Irish pishog, as they say in Gaelic. It's an Irish saying, but there's a lot in it. And I know apparitions or appearances of the Virgin that took place in various parts of Europe. And uh, people who took photographs of the, of the visions and apparitions could never get a picture of their feet. Um, I have it's, a, it's an Irish thing. An Irish thing. Yes. I have a question for my wife, which is kind of an odd question. I don't yes. know why she's asking this, but um, I'll ask it. And she, it is the following. With respect to exorcisms, yes. uh, has it ever occurred, Father... That anybody listening to the tape of an exorcism, or in fact watching a videotape of an exorcism, yes. has, as a result of that, been possessed? Well, the, question, the answer is this. It has happened in our records. Really? People who looked at or saw tapes, but we make videotapes, which are very private, or audios, audio tapes of... Uh, exorcisms, uh, that they, rare cases, rare enough anyway, that they, they, they went for a pact. They invited demonic um, invasion. Yes, I know. There's I a know. lot, there's a lot of very weak people out there spiritually. And it's very exciting. I remember well uh, being, uh, being brought into a discussion about 10 years ago now in New York in a very fashionable um, hotel by people who want desperately to participate in a, in, in a, in a Satanist um, exorcism. First of all, in Satanist rural rights and doing everything that Satanists did. And I had to keep on warning them, you, you can't do that with impunity. But they wanted the thrill of it. Well, I, to some degree, I understand that. In other words, to view an exorcism, to see the presence of, the, of, of, of Satan oh. confirms... The presence of God, and I know you need no such confirmation, but for many, um, it yeah. would be a confirmation of that kind. That's why I have a hard time understanding why those who have confirmed that Satan is as real as can be can choose that can choose that path. It's just unimaginable to me. Because one basic reason is that once you delve in, once you tamper, once you delve into it, once you tamper with it, it gives it does infection. It gives power to that uh, evil spirit uh, and you can't easily get out of it there's infection 
All right. Um, you you were advisor to uh, two popes. That's right. Uh, tonight there is news that just hours ago, mm -hmm. uh, for the first time in living human memory, actually about 150 years, they That's estimate. a very good way of putting it, in living memory. Yeah. There has been, um, uh, well, it says a member of the Pope's elite Swiss Guard apparently shot and killed his new commander and the official's wife Monday night, mm -hmm. then turned the gun on himself all within Vatican walls. Uh, a next-door neighbor found the bodies. Uh, the Vatican spokesman said this was all done uh, in what he, can, he, he called, quote, a moment of madness, mm -hmm. end quote. What in the world could be going on in the Vatican? Uh, well, I'll tell you, Art, a word to the wise. With anything like this that involves the inner life of a institution which has now uh, centuries-old precautions against publicity and being known what really goes on there, one has to be very, very circumspect and careful about any details released about uh, something that they can't hide very well. It's very hard to hide the death of two officials. Yes. And uh, uh, the wife of one. You can't hide that very well. Well, it's not being uh, hidden. Believe me, it's a lead news item. I've got I the know. They can't do anything about it. But as to the details, the devil is in the details, as they say. And we don't, the details have not been published. We do not know really what happened, except that three people are dead. And one apparently, according to the official account, by his own hand. Um, a moment of insanity, momento de insania. Yes, that's one way of, of covering the issue. It was a general blanket. It's a very careful statement, a moment of madness. Yes, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a nice way of conceiving. Yes, there was a dreadful thing. It, what it does indicate is this. Murder, the killing of another human being, the shedding of blood, uh, is one of the sure signs of demonic interference. But in the Vatican? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, is that, is, that, is, that, is that a likely target in place, or is that an unlikely target in no, place? No, no. Remember, uh, just two popes ago, one pope said, Paul VI was his name, he died in 1978, uh, and I knew him very well. Uh, he said, the smoke of Satan has entered the sanctuary. And uh, um, I think you remember a book of mine published in 1996 describing a, a Luciferian ceremony within the precincts of the Vatican. And remember that the, uh, the Vatican, the Pope, has, in his entourage, he has the chief exorcist, we all know him, Father Gabriel Amort, and there are eight um, employees, exorcists, that work both in Rome and Milan and, uh, and Turin. So there's a, there is a lot there. What we've just seen, the crack has opened, and we've seen one effect of it. Put it like this, Art, for somebody in my position, from what I know of how this institutional organization works, it is impossible that there be a triple death by violence within the precincts of the Vatican, amongst Vatican people, unless it is impossible that should happen without demonic interference.
because the thing is so, should be in principle so sacrosanct and so preserved from such activity that it might take place outside, but not inside. I was there. I, I was in the Vatican. It, it, and, and to contemplate that occurring is almost beyond... I know. I know. I know that. I know. I realize fully how it has impacted you, as we say. But uh, so my, my word to everybody is we won't know the details for a long time, if ever, in our lifetime, just as other assassinations that took place in the Vatican, we, we haven't got the details yet. What uh, The Vatican is its own sovereign state, is it Absolutely. not? Absolutely. So that uh, the investigation, the, um, the details of it, the um, suspects, the people who would be caught, and then I have no idea what would happen in, in the Vatican uh, if they came up with suspects. How are, how are things handled in the Vatican? Oh, they have their own way of dealing with that. They have their own way of dealing with that. So the so Italian Italian law in no way bears on the Vatican. No, none. Now normally, if they let's take a banal example, if somebody is found inside in the Vatican Museum trying to uh, make off with a, a valuable chalice or something, yes, they they of course uh, put him in the Vatican prison, which they have, and they call in the police, and he's you know a normal thing like that. And then they are turned over to Italian authorities. Yes, they are a normal. Uh, Normal evil. <laughs> Normal violence. Normal evil, yeah. <laughs> Normal. Anything which uh, really comes from, from deep within and betrays the presence of the... betrays that footprint again. And this does. And that's dealt with in camera and dealt with away from the prying eyes of the media and of the world. Uh, they, it's impossible for them to hide everything. And very early on, we all knew, very early on in this incident, we all knew that uh, something had happened, but the, the race in the various news media, uh, the CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, to try and get some substance to what they were hearing was fantastic to watch. Uh, of course, nothing came out because the Vatican has been choking off everything. Um, the pressure on the Vatican from the media over this is going to be big. It is going to be big. And, and do you think they will just uh, hold their silence? They will, but there's always the inevitable, the inevitable tipster, the inevitable sale of news. And that's what will probably happen. Uh, I would imagine that Catholics all over the world, uh, which look to the Vatican uh, spiritually, yeah. will want to know if uh, their spiritual capital is under siege. That's right. And uh, then, you know, Art, there's another consideration which is painful for me anyway, because I'm a papist, as you know, in spite of the fact that I have my, my criticisms of the Pope I've served with and the Pope I didn't serve with. And I have strong critiques of the present Holy Father, who is my Pope. But I have strong critiques of it. But on another plane, this is a dreadful slap in the face to John Paul II. Because this happened under his watch. No matter how you cut it, he's the boss. He's in charge. So really, it works in the Vatican like it works in Washington. Oh, uh, yes, it does. Good oh, economic yes. times, oh, the yes, president gets does. the credit, bad economic times, the oh, president yes. gets the blame. Exactly. Oh, yes, it does. And you see... Um, 
it does reflect on his administration. It does reflect on the spirit he has installed for almost 20 years you know, as Pope. And uh, a lot of us have been saying all along, for a long time, uh, there is a spirit of secularization going on uh, in John Paul II's Vatican, which uh, makes possible such incidents as this and other incidents too, which have not come to light. So it's... Uh, it must be a cause of great anguish to John Paul II. Um, uh, I'm, I'm certain anguish. that is so, but you're, you're, you're saying even what I would think of as relatively small moves because it looked uh, very non-secular when I was there, <laughs> uh, but these small moves would invite in the possibility, you're saying, of what has happened? Yes, they do. They do. They, they, the old Italian saying, which I can't quote any longer in the Italian because I forget it, is that any crack in the wall and the wisp of Satan enters, the wisp of evil enters. And um, th there is a process of, a gentle process. The intention is ecumenical. The intention is to be like the rest of the world. The intention is not to be so remote. But there is, a, 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 has been a tendency in the pontificate of John Paul II to be so accommodating. Well, give, let me give you one example. Um, no pope, believe you me, Art, no, no pope of the 263 popes before him would have sat down with the leader of the voodoo priests of Haiti, which he did. He and, did. And he said to them, look, uh, Father Maurice, I think Maurice was the name of the head of the voodoo expert uh, priest in Haiti. Look, um, we are interested in your religion and you should be interested in our religion. <laughs> that is something which is unheard of in Catholic tradition. Uh, or uh, John Paul II himself has gone to a secret island of, uh, of the Madagascar Republic where he drank from the sacred water, from the sacred um, fountain of the god, of the local god worshipped. Uh, that is, or he sat in, in, a, in a phallus-shaped chair in uh, India and had the mark of uh, Kali put on his forehead. Oh, my God. Um, father, uh, his wife shot another man who shot them, uh, committed suicide. All of this inside the walls of the Vatican, the killing, the first inside the walls of the Vatican in our living memory. I guess there may have been uh, 150 years ago something may have happened. And we were talking about that before the break. Just an incredible, incredible occurrence. And Father Martin began to say that Pope John Paul... I think uh, this bears repeating um, and and uh, some and trying to understand. Father uh, Pope John Paul sure. has been in some way affected himself. It must be a cause of great anguish for him. Well, you, you you said that, but you said that he went to a, a voodoo. And now I'm I'm not really caught up on this, Father. Well, he he went to Haiti. Haiti he had a trip, papal trip to Haiti, and during that trip he met officially with the head of the, I think it's 15,000 voodoo priests that live in Haiti and sat down with him. We have the photograph that I have it here in my files. And one of the things he said was, uh, with typical John Paul II ecumenism, look, we are interested in your doctrine and we think you should be interested in our Catholic doctrine. Um, uh, how? I know. I know, it leaves you, it leaves you speechless. Uh, or, that's right. Uh, or, for instance, uh, in years past, when he went to India, John Paul II permitted 
a young lady in a sari uh, to put the sign of Kali on his forehead with that red stain. And he sat in a chair chosen by the Indian bishops, which had the phallic shape. As you know, the phallus is worshipped in, in, in Hinduism. Why? Uh, why? Well, this, these were actions of John Paul II destined to create a, a, a great fellowship and feeling. For instance, let me give you an example which struck us all at the time and is not mentioned because people are afraid of being called anti-Semites. John Paul II went for the first time a pope as a pope. He went to the synagogue in Rome. The head of the synagogue is a very respectable rabbi called Elio Toaf, very well known to all of us. And um, they sat on, on a stage, or a bema, as they call it in Hebrew, uh, on two chairs, uh, sort of uh, catty corner facing themselves and facing the audience. And in his speech, which is a very good speech, by the very good address, John Paul II said his only reference uh, was Oh, well, by the way, you know, our founder was of your race. <laughs> That's all the testimony to Jesus that John Paul II gave. And oh. when, when, the, when his Vatican held a special Holocaust evening, which was standing room only, it was such a grand affair, with music and with uh, a huge menorah lit by the grandchildren of people who had uh, who had survived Auschwitz and Dachau and Birkenau, the Hitler camp, um, in his speech for that for that for, for that particular evening, uh, which was a Holocaust evening, John Paul II consented to have the only crucifix in the hall removed uh, in order not to offend his Jewish friends. <sighs> Uh, we consider that. Uh, for me to remark that, it's not anti-Semitism on my part. I've done more, I think, for Jewish-Christian relations than most people alive. It's a story you and I have never delved into, which we will ask another broadcast, please God. But the fact we find this, um, no pope before John XXIII, before John Paul II, would have allowed it. If a cardinal did that, under any of the other popes, the cardinal would be sent away to live life out in a monastery on the top of the Sierra Madre. Why has John Paul done it? It is his form of ecumenism. And look, let me make quite clear, Art, for you and for everybody listening, this man is my pope. He does represent Christ. He is the vicar of Christ for me. And if you were to speak under the conditions of infallibility, I will accept what he says. But I am allowed, nay, I am obliged by my tradition and my faith and by previous popes to critique anybody, priest, bishop, cardinal, or pope, when I think they are in error. Uh, in so, so, case, so, so a pope then, the, the, the pope, now I'm not a Catholic, my wife is, but the pope is supposed to be, is he not, infallible? Only under certain conditions. And only help, certain help, help me understand what conditions those would the be. In other words, this, he must state explicitly as follows, put it in my language, paraphrase it accurately. What I'm about to tell you is something I say 
as the successor of Peter, and I say it with the authority of Christ as his vicar on earth, to be held by all the faithful as a matter of profound, divine, Roman Catholic faith. He must say that. Now, John Paul II has never said that about anything, even about the ordination of, of men and women. So then he, he, he can do that on, on the one hand, though he hasn't done it, and on the other can sit down with a voodoo priest. That's right, that's right. And in his, his famous encyclical, which has become so popular with progressive Catholics, it's called Ut Unum Sint, that they may be one. He discussed and outlined the way he would like to uh, take apart the whole doctrine of the Pope's primacy in order to suit non-Catholics. So John Paul II has ventured out along the edges of orthodoxy in his statements and uh, in his preaching. But in, whenever he taught, he has never yet taught error infallibly. He's never adopted the infallible mode. The infallible mode is something where the Pope says, I am now doing this as the head of all Catholics. I'm uh, doing it as the successor of Peter and it's to be held by all the faithful under pain of mortal sin. He has never done that yet. Do you I, think, do you think, he's of course very frail now, very old. He's very frail, he's very frail and it, it makes you cry to see his face. Uh, his, his left eye is recalcitrant, he can't keep it open or shut. His hand, his left hand is jigging continuously. Yes. He doesn't look at you straight in the eye because he's bent over. And by the way, I know a man who frequents him about every six weeks from New York, and he says that surrounding John Paul II in his court, in his entourage, the hate is palpable. The hate. The hate is hate. palpable? Hate is palpable. Now, now, Father, when you heard about murder hours ago in the Vatican, were you surprised? No. You were not surprised? No. 